This is Read Japanese Literature. My name is Allison Fincher. Read Japanese Literature is a podcast about Japanese fiction and some of its best works. All the works we discuss are available in translation, so you can read along if you want, and you can find out more at readjapaneseliterature.com. If you follow at readjapaneselit on Twitter, you may have seen that we just passed 4,000 downloads. Thank you so much for your support, and I hope you'll stay in touch about what you'd like to hear on the podcast. You can reach us through at readjapaneselit on Twitter or use the contact page on the website, readjapaneseliterature.com. Today we're talking about Japan's bubble economy of the 1980s and the work of Banana Yoshimoto, Runaway Consumer Spending, Everything Kawaii, A Nobel Laureate's Contempt, and a young author whose career challenged publishing's powers that be. Just a quick warning that today we'll be discussing transphobia in the media. We'll also be discussing two hate crimes, one historical hate crime against an Asian American and one fictional hate crime against a transgender woman. I want to paint a picture in your mind. It's the early 90s. Imagine you're commuting home from your job as a Tokyo office worker. You glance to the side of the subway train and you see a poster that says something like this. At first, I didn't realize that he was talking to me, maybe because I was feeling so oppressed by the stench emanating from his body. I closed my eyes and pretended to be asleep, and then I heard him whisper directly into my left ear, Would you like to tell me why you're feeling so reluctant about going home? There was no longer any mystery about whom he was addressing, so I screwed my eyes shut even more firmly. The rhythmical sound of the train's wheels clicking along the tracks filled my ears. I wonder if you'll change your mind when you see me like this, he said. Or I thought that's what he said, but the voice changed radically, zipped up into a much higher pitch, as if someone had fast-forwarded a tape. This sent my head reeling, and everything around me seemed to rush into a different space, as the stench of the man's body disappeared, only to be replaced by the light, floral scent of perfume? My eyes still closed. I recognized a range of new smells— the warm fragrance of a woman's skin mingled with fresh summer blossoms? I couldn't resist. I had to take a look. Slowly, slowly, I opened my eyes, and what I saw almost gave me a heart attack. Inexplicably, there was a woman seated where the homeless guy had been, and the man was nowhere to be seen. On that poster... You have just encountered a small part of what was then a brand new Banana Yoshimoto short story called Newlywed. It was serialized on posters aboard and around Tokyo commuter trains as a part of an advertising campaign for Japan West Railway. The story Newlywed is part of a collection called Lizard. It was translated into English by Anne Sheriff. Newlywed is my favorite story in that collection. Actually, I think it's one of the more lovely pieces of short fiction I know of about marriage, but the whole collection is highly worth the read. Today, I want to talk about why this incident, Banana Yoshimoto, the train, the advertising campaign, is a kind of culmination of a certain moment in the history of Japanese literature. 
last episode, we talked briefly about Japan's economic miracle. After World War II ended in 1945, most of Japan lay in ashes. But from 1950 to 1973, Japan's GNP increased by an average rate of 10% a year. GNP, gross national product, is an important economic measure. It's the total value of goods and services a country's economy produces in a year. 10% a year was an absolutely unheard of rate of growth, never seen before in recorded history anywhere in the world. By the 1970s, Japan's economy was the third largest in the world after the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Japan came into the 1980s with a powerful economy, one of the fastest growing in the developed world. Unemployment was low, and Japan's currency, the yen, had had an artificially low value for years. That made Japanese goods really cheap for other countries to import. As a result, Japan ran a high trade surplus with many other developed nations. That means Japan was selling way more goods overseas than it was buying in many countries. To vastly oversimplify, a trade surplus is very often a very good thing. Many people in other parts of the world view Japan's success as a threat. Japan takes over the world became a popular pop culture trope. For example, the 1982 movie Blade Runner showed Harrison Ford in a then-future 2019 Los Angeles that looked a lot like Tokyo, and 1989's Back to the Future Part Two showed Marty McFly getting fired in the U.S. by his Japanese boss. American Congress people would, in real life, occasionally smash Japanese electronics in public to make a point. Many people have observed this is silly because they first had to buy these Japanese electronics to then smash them. In a much more serious and horrific vein, the 1980s also saw a rise of anti-Asian hate crime in the U.S., the most famous of these was probably the murder of Vincent Chin by two unemployed Detroit auto workers. The two men apparently thought Chin was Japanese and said it was because of little MFers like Chin that they were out of work. In 1985, representatives from Japan and the other four members of the G5 met at the Plaza Hotel in New York City. The G5, or Group of Five, were the non-Soviet nations with the world's most powerful economies, the U.S., Japan, West Germany, France, and the United Kingdom. At the Plaza Hotel, Japan finally agreed to policies that would strengthen the yen to try to correct trade imbalances. The government of Japan was afraid what a higher yen and lower exports might do to the economy— one of its responses was to lower interest rates for borrowing money. What's a good thing to do when you can borrow money cheaply? You buy real estate. The result? Everyone started buying real estate. This entire story may sound familiar to anyone who lived through the 2000s in the United States. To keep a long story short, low interest rates contributed to the real estate asset bubble in Japan that's why we now call the late 1980s Japan's bubble era. According to some estimates, by 1989, the land in Tokyo alone was worth more than all the real estate in the entire United States combined. 
And many people, even experts, thought the good times weren't going to end. What did the bubble economy look like for the average Japanese person? Let me outline just three major trends. Trend number one. Some Japanese people got caught up in Nihonjinron, or theories of the Japanese. There were whole sections of bookstores full of works about what made Japan uniquely successful. Was it aesthetics or culture or maybe biology, history? A lot of these books and ideas were more or less recycled 1930s nationalism. The most famous example of a Nihon Jinron title was originally written in English by a sociologist at Harvard University. In English, the book is called Japan as Number One, Lessons for America. It sold reasonably well in the U.S., but when it was translated into Japanese, it sold nearly 500,000 copies. That made it the all-time best-selling Western book of nonfiction ever published in Japan. Trend number two, the economy was booming and people with the right kind of jobs were making really good money. Most people who are making really good money were willing to accept certain trade-offs for financial and job security. One of those trade-offs, lots of people worked incredible hours, a hundred or more hours a week. It was usually men who got the jobs that came with the benefits and the pay worth working these kinds of hours. And many of them rarely saw their families. That meant their wives were left to raise their kids during the week without a lot of help. The third trend for the everyday Japanese person on the street that I want to mention today is a huge increase in consumer spending. And the government really supported domestic demand. After the 1985 Plaza Accords, the government was scared. What happens if the yen is more expensive against the dollar? What happens if people outside of Japan don't want to buy Japanese goods anymore? Why don't we try to get Japanese people to buy Japanese goods? And they did. Japanese people wanted to buy electronics. They wanted to buy newer homes. They wanted to update their homes. They wanted to travel, both domestically and internationally. And for the first time, single women became a major consumer category. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. Publishing was big business in the 80s, too. Starting at least as long ago as the Edo period, critics had divided Japanese literature into high and low. We had a whole episode about it several months ago. In the Meiji era, the bundan, or the literary elite, were careful to distinguish junbungaku, the pure or serious literature, and taishubungaku, popular or mass literature. Junbungaku almost never sold as well as popular literature. And it wasn't really supposed to. The eliteness of junbungaku was part of its appeal. Starting after World War II, the distinction between high and low had started to blur. By the 80s and 90s, the distinction had become pretty indistinct. A lot of Japan's most respected authors and critics weren't especially happy about the new status quo. Maybe no one was more vocal about it than Nobel laureate Kenzaburo Oe, 
whom we talked about in the last episode. Around this time in his career, he wrote, Serious literature and a literary readership have gone into a chronic decline, while a tendency has emerged over the last several years, a largely economic one, reflected in the fact that the novels of certain young writers like Haruki Murakami and Banana Yoshimoto each sells several hundred thousand copies. Personally, I think Oe was being a little bit of a bully to Yoshimoto. When Oe wrote these remarks in 1990, he was 55 years old. Murakami was 41. He's only 14 years younger than Oe. Yoshimoto was just 22. She's more than three decades Oe's junior. Oe had been publishing for 32 years, Murakami for 11, and Yoshimoto for 4. But one positive of grouping Yoshimoto together with Murakami, Oe at least wasn't being sexist. Oe's generational anxiety about Yoshimoto was extremely common. But Yoshimoto's writing has also been dismissed as not serious because it has been perceived as markedly female. Let me explain. A lot of critics' reluctance to take Yoshimoto seriously has come specifically from her association with a specific kind of girls' culture in Japan, shoujo. Many non-Japanese people have heard the term shoujo as a category of manga or Japanese comics. It is a category of manga. In Japan, manga are generally targeted at carefully defined demographics. Shonen is published for boys and male teenagers, titles like One Piece or Dragon Ball, Seinen is published for adult men, titles like Ghost in the Shell or Akira. Shoujo, which we're discussing today, is published for girls and female teenagers, titles like Sailor Moon or Fruits Basket. And Jolsei is published for adult women. I'm not as familiar with Jolsei manga, but apparently examples include The Delinquent Housewife and Yotakoi, Love is Hard for Otaku. Note that these consumer categories turn out to be a lot less strict than they appear. People read the wrong manga all the time. Actually, I've read Dragon Ball and Akira and Fruits Basket. I think I've only read one Jolsei manga, even though I am a Jolsei, and that's because I'm a fan of the translator, Leo McDonough. Read Japanese literature doesn't normally talk about manga, but this one is a lovely, highly recommended delight called I Think Our Son Is Gay. Anyway, these publishing categories, especially shōnen and shōjō, are also demographic categories. Some sticklers will insist that shōjō can't be translated with a single English word. Maybe it means something closer to not yet woman, or maybe someone older than a girl who isn't yet a sexual object as a woman. The idea of shōjō as a concept dates to the Meiji era. Really, it's a similar concept to the idea evolving at the same time in the U.S. and the U.K. The Victorians were really the first people in the Anglo-American world to treat adolescence as a separate time in a person's life between childhood and adulthood. Before the 1800s, you were a kid, you hit sexual maturity, and then you were more or less an adult. 
especially if you were a woman. In Meiji Japan, the concept of shoujo most obviously evolved at girls' boarding schools. For the first time, adolescent girls spent a lot of time alone together in a place set aside just for them. You may remember the magazines we talked about in earlier episodes. Some of these magazines were specifically published with these girls in mind. Shoujo magazines were published to please shoujo shumi, or girls' taste. Shoujo stories and shoujo manga both responded to and shaped what girls liked. This isn't unusual. Compare. Today, in American bookstores, a display tells a kid she wants to read about pink unicorns because she's an eight-year-old girl. Therefore, she buys the book about pink unicorns. Therefore, she grows to love pink unicorns, teaches all her friends to love pink unicorns. They all share together their love of pink unicorns. Therefore, eight-year-olds liking pink unicorns becomes a part of being an eight-year-old girl. And therefore, the publisher publishes more books for eight-year-old girls about pink unicorns. Early shoujo magazines assumed the things girls liked included innocence, purity, dreaminess, and wistfulness. Again, these things girls are supposed to like transcend time and culture. Thus, the pink unicorns at the bookstore in 2022. Stories in shoujo magazines were often illustrated with lyrical pictures, and over time, shoujo has become almost synonymous with a certain kind of drawing, big eyes, decorated backgrounds with motifs like flowers and ribbons, and characters wearing distinctive outfits, very fashionable according to some standard of fashion. Shoujo is also strongly tied to the kawaii aesthetic. Kawaii is a Japanese word meaning lovely or cute or adorable. Kawaii culture became increasingly relevant in Japan in the 1980s. The shoujo genre also favors certain kinds of stories. Most importantly, it focuses on relationships, both love and friendship. As early as the 1920s, shoujo stories have featured heroines who defy traditional gender roles. Over time, shoujo has also become a place to explore same-sex relationships. And today, boy's love is a popular shoujo subgenre. Many shoujo stories also feature the supernatural. Maybe most importantly, content aimed at shoujo speaks to its audience sometimes literally, it's produced so readers or viewers can imagine that they are friends with the writers, artists, actors, or characters. This is how Banana Yoshimoto described shoujo content. She said, it contains the tacit understanding between those writing them and those reading them that it's best if only girls understand what is going on. In the 1980s, shoujo became a consumer category like never before. Women entered and stayed in the workforce in greater numbers. They weren't always getting paid much, at least in comparison to their male counterparts. They tended to work dead-end jobs. The assumption was that they'd get married and leave. In fact, many of them were hired and told explicitly, this is not a career track that you continue on. These dead-end jobs were sometimes labeled office ladies or OLs. 
But many of these women lived at home with their parents and didn't have a lot of other expenses. So regardless of what they were getting paid, most of it was disposable income. For her part, in the 80s and early 90s, Banana Yoshimoto cited manga as the greatest influence on her style. Early in her career, she described herself as a taishu saka, or popular writer. She was part of a generation she said was raised on manga and television. She explained, that's why we understand only those things that go fast. And she even spoke about herself as a part of a generation that came of age with a set of consumer products that were aimed specifically at them. A lot of the criticism aimed at Yoshimoto was very specifically lobbed at her because of her connection with shoujo culture. Sometimes the criticism was made directly and sometimes it was made implicitly. For example, in 1991, a well-known Japanese professor of literature said that Yoshimoto's writing is, quote, baby talk, uninterrupted by humor, emotion, idea, not to say irony or intelligence. Even some of her supporters more or less damned her with faint praise. Novelist Shinichiro Nakamura, a man, was one of the judges on the committee that awarded Yoshimoto her first literary prize. She won the Kayan Prize, the award for newcomers in the journal where she published her first and maybe still most famous novel, Kitchen. I should mention that Kayan was a popular and important literary journal. This is what Nakamura wrote about Kitchen. It is a work written on a theme and with a sensibility that the older generation of which I am a part could never have imagined. Nakamura was born in 1918, by the way, about 10 years before Yukio Mishima and about 20 years before Kinzaburo Oe. He went on, It is the product of an abandon completely indifferent to literary traditions, its naive rejection of the very question of whether it does or does not conform to conventional concepts is precisely what makes it a new sort of literature. I think this is supposed to be complimentary. At least Nakamura is willing to admit that Yoshimoto might represent a new sort of literature. A significant number, maybe even most, of Yoshimoto's critics are men. There was a lot of reluctance by the men who had traditionally held power in literary circles to regard women's writing as something worth reading seriously. Remember the sexism Meiji-era women writers faced, which we discussed in an earlier episode. And Yoshimoto wasn't just a woman writing. She was a woman writing stories that looked and felt like they were writing for women. Many male critics would have preferred to dismiss writing like Yoshimoto's as just too sweet. But Yoshimoto's writing also represents a certain rejection of the status quo, patriarchal, heteronormative, violent. Surely that also seemed threatening. Personally, I think critics have also struggled to accept Banana Yoshimoto's work as literary because she isn't depressing. That isn't to say that Banana Yoshimoto doesn't take up serious topics. She absolutely does. Kitchen alone addresses death, grief, transphobia, and murder. Yoshimoto's other stories tackle things like infidelity, rape, suicide, and a host of other traumas. In fact, trauma may be her central theme. 
certainly one of them. It's just that Yoshimoto's tone isn't as heavy as the tone of other literary authors, especially maybe Japanese ones. Yoshimoto's writing is less about the bad things that happen than about moving on and healing. Banana Yoshimoto was born in July 1964. Her birth name was Mahoko. Banana's father, Takaki Yoshimoto, was a poet and something of a maverick post-war intellectual. Yoshimoto wrote about the people. For language nerds, he used terms like taishu and minshu instead of the more historically problematic words kokumin and shinmin. Yoshimoto never really defined what he meant by the people, but it is clear he was referring to something like the everyone else Japan's political and intellectual elite basically ignored. In the 1980s, Yoshimoto's politics veered to the right. For example, he publicly supported some right-wing politicians and publicly criticized right-wing anti-nuclear activists like Kinzaburo Oe. He also made the occasional problematic remark. For example, he once said, if feminism gains more currency than it currently has, the birth rate will drop to zero. These sorts of remarks occasionally caused issues for Banana Yoshimoto during her early career. About her father, Banana has said, quote, He enabled me to look at my own works with a degree of objectivity, and I can feel the tenor of the age with my skin. I know how to step back and analyze my feelings, even if I'm feeling totally overwhelmed and swallowed up by those feelings. Banana Yoshimoto has also been famously guarded about her private life. She studied literature at the prestigious Nihon University. While studying, she adopted Banana as her pen name. Banana is for the flower, not the fruit. She loves banana flowers, and she has said she finds the name both cute and purposefully androgynous. She is married, and she has one son, born in 2003. Her sister, Yoriko Haruno, is a well-known cartoonist in Japan. Yoshimoto wrote Kitchen while she was working as a waitress at a golf club. Since her debut, Banana Yoshimoto has published 12 novels and 7 essay collections. She has sold over 6 million volumes worldwide. 11 of her novels and volumes of short stories appear in English, and you can find a list at readjapaneseliterature.com on the episode page. Her most recently translated title into English is a volume of short stories called Dead End Memories, translated by Asa Yonada, that became available in August of 2022. It's fantastic, and you can find a link to a review and to buy the book on the episode page. It is hard to overstate the commercial success of the story that became Banana's big break, Kitchen. It had over 60 printings in Japan alone. It has been made into two different feature-length films, one made in Japan and the other in Hong Kong. I haven't seen either, but both have pretty good reviews on the internet movie database. The story's protagonist is Mikage Sakurai. She loves kitchens. She works as an assistant at a culinary school. Her grandmother has just died, and she's been sleeping on the floor of the kitchen in her grandmother's apartment ever since. When the novel opens, she is still on the kitchen floor. Then one of her grandmother's friends arrives, 
a nice young man, a year younger than Mikage, named Yuichi Tanabe, who worked at her grandmother's favorite florist shop. He has come to invite Mikage to move into the apartment he shares with his mom, Eriko. Kitchen is a two-part story. For the first half, the relationship between Mikage and Yuichi is extremely typical of a shoujo story. It's mostly platonic, it's fraternal, and it's ambiguous. There's no sex, there's no romance, it's just a man and a woman being friendly. Mikage says of Yuichi, his attitude was so totally cool, though I felt I could trust him. In the black gloom before my eyes, as it always is in cases of bewitchment, I saw a straight road leading from me to him. He seemed to glow with white light. And so Mikage goes to live with the Tanabes, and they become Mikage's found family. Banana Yoshimoto is distinctly interested in found families. A found family is the family you choose instead of the family you're born with. Found families show up in almost all of her early fiction, at least her early novellas and novels. Most of Yoshimoto's found families are matriarchal, positive and alive father figures, biological or otherwise, are pretty rare in Yoshimoto's earlier work. Early in her career, Yoshimoto wrote an essay about family, and this is what she had to say. Usually, the world is a terribly difficult place to be, and lots of times we end up living our lives apart from each other. That's why the family is a fort built for us to flee into. She goes on, Wherever I go, I end up turning people into a family of my own. That's just the way I am, for better or worse, and I've got to live that way. What I call a family is still a group of fellow strangers who have come together, and because there's nothing more to it than that, we really form good relationships with each other. In Kitchen, the Tanabes, Mikage's found family, help her recover from her grief and begin to build a life for herself as an adult. Mikage may not fall in love with Yuichi, but she does fall in love with the Tanabe's apartment, especially, you might have guessed, with their kitchen. It is full of every kitchen gadget Mikage can imagine. It's a kind of kitchen consumerist's paradise. But the main feature of the whole apartment is an enormous sofa right next to the kitchen, and the life of the family is literally centered on the kitchen the sofa surrounding the kitchen where everyone hangs out. Mikage describes this enormous sofa as delicious, and it eventually becomes her bed. But it's the 1980s, so we have to think about the kitchen a little differently. Mikage doesn't love kitchens because they're the place a good wife and wise mother is supposed to spend all her time. Mikage is a cooking instructor. She likes kitchens because she loves cooking, it's a thing she chooses to do and a career. And Yoshimoto uses the title of the book to highlight that the kitchen is a different place for Mikage than it would have been for a woman of an earlier generation. The title in Japanese is kitchen, the translated English word for kitchen. It's not the more traditional Japanese word daidokoro, which literally means something like machine place because it's where all the kitchen gadgets are. I want to take a minute to talk about Yuichi's mother, Eriko. Mikage is blown away by the marvelous light Eriko gives off. 
it seems to vibrate with life force. Soon after Mikage meets Eriko, Eriko leaves again to return to the bar she owns, and Yuichi takes great pleasure in surprising Mikage. Guess what? She's a man! After my real mother died, Yuichi explains, Eriko quit her job, gathered me up, and asked herself, what do I want to do now? What she decided was, become a woman. She knew she'd never love anybody else. She raised me a woman alone, as it were. Banana Yoshimoto's portrayal of Eriko is complex. Now, Yoshimoto wrote Kitchen more than 30 years ago. We have more nuanced ways to talk about gender today. And the ways we talk about gender and sexuality are also tied to culture. Yoshimoto and Eriko are Japanese. I'm American. Japan and Japanese literature have rich histories surrounding gender and gender nonconformity. If you're interested, I've linked to an informative introductory essay by Alexander Cross on the website. Add to that that Kitchen is a Japanese language book that I read and am talking about in English. I guess what I'm trying to say is I've tried to do my research for this discussion and I apologize in advance for my screw-ups. Eriko Tanabe began living as a woman soon after Yuichi's mother died. I'm going to let Eriko summarize her story in her own words as she tells her story to Mikage a little bit later in the book. I realized that the world did not exist for my benefit. It followed that the ratio of pleasant and unpleasant things around me would not change. It wasn't up to me. It was clear that the best thing to do was to adopt a sort of muddled cheerfulness. So I became a woman, and here I am. And she explains, I have cheerfully chosen to make my body my fortune. I am beautiful. I am dazzling. If people I don't care for are attracted to me, I accept it as the wages of beauty. Based on what I have been able to find translated into English, I think it's fair to say that Banana Yoshimoto didn't quite grasp the full impact Eriko would have when she presented one of the most visible trans characters in modern Japanese literature. Yoshimoto wrote about her creation of Eriko in an essay called Hey Old Queen, Where Are You Off To? I'll read some excerpts from that essay. Quote, When I was writing the novel... I had conceived of Eriko as a sort of parody of the archetypal mother-in-law rather than as a meditation on gay people. Indeed, Eriko was not gay. He was simply a man who dressed in women's clothing. I'm using the pronouns here from the translation of Yoshimoto's article. Soon after the novel came out, however, I had many new experiences in my life, including having a gay friend for the first time. He taught me many things about the gay world. Anne Sheriff translated that excerpt. She summarizes Yoshimoto's approach as, quote, more narrative or literary in nature than it was a comment on the social realities of gays and transsexuals in society. On the other hand, Kitchen was translated into English in 1993. Media representation for trans people is still a problem in 2022. Trans characters in the 1980s and 90s were often presented as deceptive or even dangerous. Sometimes they were running gags. In 1993, the trans-adjacent character most likely to come to mind for many English speakers was the serial killer Buffalo Bill in 1991's Silence of the Lambs. Even in the movie, Buffalo Bill isn't actually trans. 
I've linked to a long video analysis of trans representation in English language media by Lindsay Ellis on the website. Representation in Japanese language media wasn't really any better. In that context, Eriko represents something rather extraordinary. Columnist Alexander Cross describes Eriko as the first down-to-earth and sincere representation of a transgender character that I have ever come across. That's not an unusual experience for readers of Kitchen, and Cross wrote this column in 2021. Kitchen is still beloved by many members of the LGBTQ community. Critics have praised it not just for being ahead of its time, but as an objectively positive portrayal of a transgender character. Just last year, Willow Heath, who co-runs the website and booktube channel Books and Bow, emphasized the way in which Eriko is not defined by being transgender, but rather for her femininity and the love she has for her son. Part two of Kitchen takes place some months later, and it opens abruptly. Eriko died in late autumn. Eriko has been stabbed to death by an obsessed man who finds out she is transgender. At least Eriko has the dubious consolation of taking her attacker with her. This is, I think, the most problematic part of Eriko's character. It's altogether too normal in stories for LGBTQ characters to die. Some storytellers seem to think that death is the natural end to an LGBTQ character's story arc, and homophobic or transphobic attacks are a particularly and unfortunately common way to end their stories. To be fair, Banana Yoshimoto's secondary characters have a tendency to die. Some critics have suggested death is her principal theme. Now that Eriko has died, Yuichi is devastated. It's Mikage's turn to support him through his grief. Earlier in the story, the relationship is everything you'd expect from a shoujo story. His relationship with Mikage is mostly platonic and fraternal. But when he gets in touch with Mikage to tell her about Eriko's murder, he wonders if she'll move back in. And now Mikage has to ask herself if the love she feels is really fraternal after all. Maybe not. The climax of the story is charming and cute and so banana. I don't want to spoil it, but I will share one of the novel's most memorable monologues. Mikage is speaking. You see, Yuichi, how much I don't want to lose you. We've been very lonely, but we had it easy. Because death is so heavy, we, too young to know about it, couldn't handle it. After this, you and I may end up seeing nothing but suffering, difficulty, and ugliness— but if only you'll agree to it, I want for us to go on to more difficult places, happier places, whatever comes, together. I like these lines because they really capture the spirit of the whole story. Mikage and Yuichi are family in every way that counts, and together they suffer, grieve, and grow. Emperor Hirohito died in early 1989. His death meant the end of the Showa period, an era of Japanese history marked by war, destruction, recovery, and then almost miraculous growth. In the months of illness leading up to his death, the government urged people to exercise self-restraint. Not everyone did, 
but public officials claimed it wasn't appropriate to be high-spirited when the emperor lay dying. It turned out that the good times never really came back. We'll talk about it in more detail later, but in brief, not so long after the emperor's death, the real estate bubble burst, the people of Japan found out how corrupt many of their politicians really were, Japan's export economy collapsed, its economic growth disappeared, unemployment skyrocketed, wages plummeted, and then the mid-90s saw a terrible earthquake in Kobe and an act of terrorism just months later. The economic fallout affected everything. Some people call the 90s Japan's lost decade. Banana Yoshimoto kept writing. You might even say she took up one of Mikage's questions on behalf of Japan's younger people. At one point in the novel, Mikage asks of herself, was that what it means to be an adult, to live with ugly ambiguities? A lot of Yoshimoto's characters are the people who were more vulnerable in the economy after the bubble burst. Workers who didn't have office jobs or were more likely to be the first to go, especially women. Young people who couldn't break into the careers they'd been promised when they graduated from university, a huge portion of the generation that graduated from university in the 90s never found full-time work. I've already mentioned Yoshimoto's most recently translated title, Dead End Memories. It was published in Japan in 2003. And the endings of the stories in Dead End Memories are a lot less ambiguous than the endings of some of her earlier stories. Readers whose daily lives had come to look a lot less certain might find some comfort in the certainty Banana Yoshimoto wrote for her characters. So why read Banana Yoshimoto? For many people, Banana Yoshimoto is the very first author they read in translation from Japanese, or in translation at all. Her characters are relatable. Their experiences move well across cultures and times. Her stories are good, and there's something almost subversive in reading and appreciating how meaningful these stories are especially when so many important people have tried to dismiss them. Banana Yoshimoto is also an author who carries a lot of cultural currency. Reading her work is an experience that most lovers of Japanese literature in translation share, and she's had an influence on the generation of writers who have followed her. She opened doors for women writers and for the translation of women writers from Japan into other languages. Today, I've been reading from Megan Baucus's translation of Kitchen. Newlywed is part of the short story collection Lizard, translated into English by Anne Sheriff. I'm grateful for articles by Anne Sheriff and John Whittier Treat for many of the quotes by Yoshimoto and her critics that I've been able to read today. You can find links to purchase all of Banana Yoshimoto's books, as well as links to a bibliography and resources at readjapaneseliterature.com. Buy your books through our link to bookshop.org to support the podcast. I've got one more episode in mind for our season one overview of the history of Japanese literature. I'd like to think about what happened to Japanese literature after the bubble burst, Japan during what some people have dubbed the lost decade and beyond. We'd love to hear from you about the podcast. You can always tweet us at at ReadJapaneseLit or use the contact page on the website. 
follow us on Twitter for author quotes, links to extra information, and ideas that didn't quite make it into the episode. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice. That's one of the most important ways you can help us grow. A special thank you today to Nike Kafezakis for input about the episode. A thank you, as always, to the Japanese Literature Twitter community, the Japanese Literature Group on Goodreads, and the Japanese Literature Group on Facebook. And thank you, as always, to producer Kaim, K-H-A-I-M, for today's music, at Kaim Music and KaimMusic.com. Music.com.